Welcome to episode five of Society 2.0. Today we're going to speak with Tom Raftery, global VP, futurist, and innovation evangelist for SAP. Some interesting topics today. We talk about how energy, specifically renewables, are really making headway in the marketplace. And then we touch on some flying cars, some self-driving cars, and even predictive maintenance when it comes to those vehicles, as well as medicine. So let's dive in and get started. So I want to welcome to the podcast, Tom Raftery, Global VP, Futurist, and Innovation Evangelist for SAP. Welcome, Tom. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for inviting me on. Oh, my pleasure. I was looking forward to this when I went through all of your old hero podcast and really piqued an interest on trying to learn more about uh, your your work at SAP and your role as an evangelist. Uh, I've always found that term fascinating, an evangelist. I just yeah. always find a guy in a robe up on a stage, you know, just <laughs> preaching about particular technologies. You know that the first time I came across the term evangelist used in a technology setting was way back in the early 90s. And it was uh, Guy Kawasaki was an evangelist for Apple at the time. Uh, and uh, he used to write an article in, I think it was Mac User or Mac World or one of those magazines. It was on like the back page of uh, of every week or every month when it came out. And that was the first time I, I ever heard someone use the term in, with respect to technology. Yeah, I work with Amazon and, and a lot of their, their guys are evangelists and they go around the country and preaching the values of Amazon Alexa. Right, right. And, and cloud, no doubt, AWS and all yeah, that kind of stuff. Yeah, and all those yeah, things. Yeah. So. Let's get started in some of the the juicier topics. I mean, it's obvious from some of the podcasts that I've listened to and some of the writings that you have out there that you have a real passion around energy, clean energy, and how how we can make it more efficient. And I guess from a high level, what exciting trends are you seeing in the energy sector that you think might allow us to use energy more efficiently or even maybe enable us to provide more energy cheaply to emerging countries. Sure, sure. So, yeah, energy is a big uh, area of interest for me. I, I, I generally like to be in areas where there's a lot of disruption. So I'm, I, 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 I'm quite broad in my scope. Uh, I do a lot of stuff in energy, a lot of stuff in healthcare, a lot of stuff in mobility, a lot of stuff in manufacturing, a lot of stuff in uh, food production and things like that. But energy, yeah, energy particularly has been, I've been very interested in that since I started, a, I co-founded a data center back in uh, 2006 to 2008 and had to really dig into it, the energy space there because we designed it as a hyper energy efficient data space. Uh, to get back to your question, um, so uh, the, the, the big trends that are happening today in energy, there are three big things that are going on. Uh, the first is the move to connected energy through the likes of uh, the IoT technologies. The second is the rise of the renewables, uh, which is phenomenal. And we'll come back to that in a sec. And the, the third real big one is the shift to storage. And there's been a huge problem with energy over the last, uh, you know, nearly 200 years, really. Uh, and, and it's since the Industrial Revolution. And that is that most of our energy up until now uh, has been uh, created by burning, uh, be it burning wood or burning coal or burning oil or burning gas or one of these fuels. Uh, and that's obviously hugely problematic from an environmental perspective. Uh, and... Only in the last really decade or even less 
uh, has the rise of renewables started to become a thing, shall we say? Uh, there's always been, well, yeah, there's always been renewables around. I mean, wind turbines were used for milling, you know, in, in Holland and the Netherlands, places like that, like 500 years ago and even earlier. But really in terms of making a significant dent in our energy production, uh, it's only been in the last really five to 10 years and more particularly in the last five years have we seen the rise of renewables. And that's happening because it's happening not for reasons of you know, climate change or sustainability or air pollution, although those are those do play a part. But the main reason it's happening is economic. It's actually cheaper now to build new uh, wind or new solar parks than it is to operate existing coal or gas plants. Let me say that again. It is now cheaper to build new wind farms or solar farms than it is to operate existing gas or coal plants. This that, is a landmark moment yeah, in, that's in a, the energy space. That seems amazing to me, considering the amount of real estate you would need for some of those ventures, like solar or, or, or even wind. But yeah, go on. I'm, I'm fascinated. Yeah, no, it's and this is very recent. This is in the last couple of months. It's it's been a trend that it's been heading towards that. Uh, there's you're familiar with Moore's law, obviously. Yeah, there's a similar. There's a similar law in solar uh, called the Swanson effect. And the Swanson effect says that the cost of solar drops 20% for every doubling of installed capacity. And that's held true for the last 40 years, and it continues to hold true. Uh, back 40 years ago, it, uh, the solar used to be about $76 per kilowatt hour. It's now less than $0.02 cent per kilowatt hour. Wow. So the, 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 the fall in price has been spectacular. Spectacular. And one of the reasons coal and gas uh, are, are more expensive now is that there's in many markets there's a price on carbon and there's also increasing prices for coal and gas. So the two factors coming together have pushed up the cost of operating coal and gas plants. And then things like the Swanson effect have pushed down the cost and continue to push down the cost of wind and solar because the technologies uh, are constantly pushing the price down. Uh, it, it used to be that the largest wind turbine you could get would be somewhere between 500 kilowatts and one megawatt. And if you wanted to deploy, say, 12 megawatts offshore, it meant putting out 12 wind turbines offshore, installing them and maintaining them, you know, which has significant costs associated with it. But now the latest GE Heliide X wind turbines are 12 megawatts. So now if you want to deploy 12 megawatts offshore, you just need to stick a single 12 megawatt wind turbine out there, which drastically reduces the cost of installation and drastically reduces the cost of maintenance. And you get the 12 megawatts. And, and the Tom, other thing just about, for the audience, sorry to interrupt, but the sure. 12 megawatts, what does that translate into for from a consumer perspective? I was afraid you were going to ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, it's so, curious because I'm just wondering, like, if that's if if, and I'm I'm no expert in it either. So I I was just yeah. wondering, well, is that a whole lot of energy, or is that you know it could power huge. a city? You know, like if that can power a city, that's huge. It's not quite a city, but let's let's go back to the data center that I was involved in in uh, in 2006 when we started off. That had a one megawatt connection, so uh, and that would be thousands of houses. Um, my own house here, we have a seven kilowatt 
connection to the grid. So seven kilowatt, multiply that up. Uh, so how many is that? That's 7,000. Oh, I can't do the maths. It's it's yeah. a lot of houses. <laughs> I was better at English. <laughs> <laughs> it would be, yeah, it would be 7,000 7, houses would be uh, seven megawatts. Off of one wind turbine. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 12,000 houses roughly or so off a single turbine. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty spectacular. And what's even more interesting is these bigger wind turbines now have a, have a, have a larger what's called capacity factor. The capacity factor is the amount of time that they're generating electricity. So the capacity factor of the large offshore wind turbines now is about 65%. And if that doesn't sound like a lot, well, according to the IEA, the International Energy Agency, the capacity factors for coal and gas are 54 to 56%. Uh, and that is... Uh, that's really counterintuitive because you would expect coal and gas to be yeah. significantly higher. But of course, the reason coal and gas are so low is because they, in, in, in the wholesale energy markets, as the price of energy drops, as it goes below a particular threshold, coal and gas drop out of the market because they've got fuel costs and increasing fuel costs. So they don't want to be making a loss. So when the price is low, they drop out of the market. Whereas wind and solar have no fuel costs. So they're price takers. They'll stay in the market no matter what the price. So in fact, if you are selectively, as if you are selecting for cheaper electricity, it's a good proxy for green electricity. It's a proxy because the percentage of renewables in the mix in cheaper electricity is higher. Yeah, the renewables, it seems like, don't have the same dependency on themselves, meaning there's not a cannibalistic process. So with the the burning fuels yep. they need machines that require those same fuels to transport create move whereas the and, renewables don't need that at all and and if you if you're burning gas to generate electricity you have to buy the gas exactly all right and so you coal. you can you're you're it's a, it's a consuming process you yes. know a full circle whereas the renewables are they produce they just yes. produce correct uh, now obviously there's maintenance but everything has maintenance but if I need a, a gas or a diesel truck to move the material and then the machines that create it also need fuel, then I'm consuming part of what I'm creating. Indeed. And, and that, not, that's pretty amazing. Not, not only that, the other thing that you have to consider uh, is these are thermal plants. So what they do is they generate electricity by creating heat, using that heat to boil water and using the steam from that boiling water to uh, move turbines which means the water footprint of these big thermal plants is enormous, whereas the water footprint of solar and wind is pretty much zero. Hmm. Yeah, you don't hear a lot about this. No. <laughs> you really don't. No, you don't. I don't know why. I mean, what do you, what do you, why do you think there's not a lot more? I mean, we've been on what for about 15 minutes and I've learned more about solar and wind and power <laughs> than I've, I've learned in my entire 40 years. So. Good. How how do you why do you think that this is not communicated more? Or is it just too com people think it's just too complex or 
I, I guess, yeah, um, I don't know, to be honest. Uh, up until now, there wasn't really much option is, is the other side of it. So why would you talk about the water footprint of, footprint of a gas plant if, you know, you didn't really have much alternative to it? But now you do start to have options and particularly in water stress places, think California during droughts, think Israel, think, you know, uh, southern Spain where I am. Uh, you know, these places have, have water stresses from time to time, uh, some more often than others. And of course, if you can generate electricity without requiring water it's a huge boon to the to the locality yeah no completely that is really interesting somehow we have to get the message out you know and also i don't think there's from a consumer <laughs> perspective there's not a lot of options like in my neighborhood i can't say you know what i want to switch to a renewable <laughs> there's not someone i can really call there is more of a monopoly from the power side that where that i'm plugged on, in is where i'm plugged in that depends on the market you're in that's um, true that is true you know, the U.S. is uh, very much regional monopolies, uh, whereas uh, apart from Texas, I think the ERCOT system there, there's competition. But in, in a lot of the U.S., it's regional monopolies. Uh, in Europe uh, and in most of Asia, it's it's very competitive market space. In fact, in uh, the U.K., the customer churn on utilities is at about 20 percent. And in Australia, it's about 30 percent. Mm. Wow. We have to do yeah. more over here across the pond, try to figure <laughs> out how we can plug into different different grids. Yeah, I mean, not yeah. not only from the standpoint of energy, but it also provides a level of security. It does, and it it keeps the utilities on their toes. And you know, if you're if one utility is offering a green tariff and another isn't, well, you know, you can switch to the the one that's providing the green tariff. And of course, that makes uh, that that then. Uh, puts up a demand signal for, for renewable energy, which, you know, means that the one who isn't uh, will want to up their percentage of renewable in their mix. Talk a little bit about your, the, the shift to storage that you mentioned. Yeah, again, driven by price. Uh, so the cost of a kilowatt hour of lithium ion storage in 2010 was $1,000. Uh, by 2017, that had fallen to 200, so an 80% fall. And in a recent earnings call, uh, Elon Musk said that by the end of 2018, so in a couple of weeks' time, well, a few weeks' time, uh, they'll be down for Tesla, who are one of the world's largest producers of batteries, they'll be down to $100 uh, per kilowatt hour of battery cells. Uh, so that's a spectacular fall in price. And then that has all kinds of implications. Uh, it now means that lithium-ion batteries at utility scale are economic, whereas they never were before. Consequently, late last year, uh, Tesla rolled out a 100 megawatt hour uh, battery plant in southern Australia. It came online in November last year in a place called the Hornsdale Battery Reserve, largest battery plant in the world still was then is still now uh, and um, the Australian energy market operator is an organization called AEMO AEMO Australian <coughs> energy market operator they issued a report about this battery plant in April of this year uh, and the, the report's online I'm happy to provide a link to it uh, where they sang the praises of this battery plant they said it was spectacular they provided charts and graphs to show the difference between it and uh, a thermal plant in how it helps them to manage the stability of the grid 
And it also means that, you know, for the local renewables, when the wind is blowing, they can pump energy into the battery, uh, excess energy into the battery, or when the sun is shining, they can store excess solar energy in the battery. And then when the, the, the wind or the sun drops off, they can, you know, extract the energy from the battery and send, send it into the grid. So it means that uh, for, for the likes of the variable generators, the wind and the solar, it, it smooths out the, the, the peaks and valleys and it makes the grid much more stable for everybody. That battery plant cost $66 million to put in place. And by September of this year, it had earned back 17 million so that by November of this year now, it will have earned about 20 million. So you're looking at an ROI of about three years for this plant. And so as a result, because it has been so spectacularly successful, there's been a slew of these battery plants pop up all over the world off the back of that. If they've now proven that it, that the technology is mature, it's, uh, it's working perfectly in Australia, it's making back money, the cost of deployment has been, uh, they've made a third of it back already. Uh, and it's made the, the, the grid in Southern Australia far more reliable. So it's, it's a huge boom. Wow. So it provides reliability, but it, it does. And it obviously creates jobs as well. Correct. What's even more interesting though, is because the price of lithium ion batteries is coming down soon, everyone will have one. Uh, and I mean that literally, because we're moving into an era of electric transportation in our cars. And that's going to happen quicker than most people realize. Uh, and so everyone will be able to play a part in this market. Your car sitting in your driveway, uh, electric car, will be plugged into your wall charger. And when there's an excess of production of wind, the price of electricity on the wholesale market can go negative. This has happened multiple times already in different areas where there's a high penetration of renewables. So if the price of electricity goes negative, you can then, or even goes cheap, you can then suck in that energy into your car, store it in the battery in your car, and then if the price goes up and you have enough in the car to get to work the following morning and your car figures all this out for you, your car can start selling the energy from your battery and make you a profit. All so you're like a mini power bed. plant yourself. Correct. Correct. These are when when you aggregate when you aggregate these, you get what's called virtual power plants, and it's already happening. So uh, we've talked a bit about Tesla. Tesla have deployed, or sorry, Tesla are in the middle right now of deploying fifty thousand solar roofs on houses in South Australia, and fifty thousand of their Powerwall batteries. And they're connecting all of these fifty thousand homes to the grid through a single interface. So it appears to be, to the grid, it appears to be a 600 megawatt power plant, but it's actually 50,000 homes aggregated. It's like cloud computing for energy. Yeah, yeah. It, you're real, basically, it's, it's crowdsourced energy. Yeah. Because uh, yeah. if, yeah. if you, like my neighborhood, yeah, exactly. My, my neighborhood has over, I think, 15, 1,600 homes. If we all had uh, roofs on our house that could pull in energy, store yep. it, power our own development and then sell the rest back to the grid. That would be amazing. And have a community battery plant as well. Well, not only that, but if you think about it, it's self-sustaining. So I'm powering the community homes. The community is selling power back to the grid, which could also, that money could be then used to maintain the community. Correct. So now any, there's, there's a lot, I don't know, 
what it's like in, in Spain, but we have communities here where there's a lot of homeowners associates where you have to pay a lot of money to, to belong to yep. different, but you, those could potentially go away if, if it, you have, if you're selling energy back to the grid, therefore paying for the community. I mean, the, the ideas or, or the potential kind of endless, the things you get to come up with. Um, it is even it for is. the Absolutely. gates for fishing. Like there's obviously we have lakes around us. There's probably wave energy. I don't know how efficient that is, but there's probably wave energy processes that we could pick up on wave and, and tidal. Both yeah, wave and tidal. Are, are, yeah, yeah. Tidal is great because it's base load. Um, wave, wave can vary significantly d- depending on on the prevailing winds. For example, uh, another lovely story I saw out of South Australia as well was um, to do with solar. Uh, and what happened there is the regional government there was giving people an energy subsidy. They were subsidizing their energy bills. This is for low-income housing. They were subsidizing their energy bills by uh, 280 Australian dollars a year. So not significant. You know, it was a small little uh, cash top-up to help them with their energy bills. And they took that away and replaced it with solar panels on the roofs of the houses. So now, instead of getting an energy subsidy, instead of getting cash into their hands, they're getting a reduction in their annual energy bill of between five and 600 Australian dollars. So a three times bigger benefit to the homeowners who are low-income houses anyway, and renewable energy for the grid. So a beautiful win-win. I thought that was a fantastic story. Yeah, that is a fantastic story. Wow. Okay. So we can just hang up now. I mean, this was just great. <laughs> that was a great 25 minutes of just energy. <laughs> I mean, to me, it's fascinating how the, the challenge I see, at least in the U.S., is just getting that, getting things to turn, like to get that momentum. And that's where I find it's really hard because the power companies are so ingrained in yeah, everything yes and, we yes do. And no, but the, the economics are there now. And what we're seeing in the US is a, a record year for shuttering of coal plants. Uh, 2017 was a record year as well. And 2018 is going to be an even greater record year for shuttering of coal plants just because they're uneconomic. They no longer make economic sense and renewables do. So the I, I think the the U.S. is at historic lows for carbon intensity of its electricity, and it's going to keep going that way because the plants are just going to keep shutting down, and more renewables are going to be brought onto the grid. Hmm. I hope I hope that's the case. It is, well, yeah, that, and it's it, it's it's all economics, you know, that which which is driving it. It's that's the fundamental that's pushing this forward, which means it will keep going. And as as it keeps going, it it's you know it's kind of a self fulfilling thing because as more are rolled out of the renewables, the price keeps dropping. Well, for sure, if there's money to be made, there'll be a switch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, that's without a doubt. Well, that, that helps me segue into the next part, which is IoT. And based on your experience in the industry, and, and you know, we've just talked about have, setting up batteries in multiple locations, even setting them up on roofs. How do you think that IoT could play a role in providing data back to the power plants or the distributors, I'll call them? to help make it even more efficient because, you know, obviously just putting the devices there are great, but unless we can actually do something with the data via machine learning or, or whatever it might be, how do you think that that might make it even cheaper for us in the future? Sure. The, the big thing, I mean, uh, IOT obviously by itself is useless. Um, you know, as a a former IOT evangelist, people (laughs) would be screaming at me hearing you saying that, but it is, 
IoT by itself. You're going to get lots of email, Tom. (laughs) But, you know, it's the smarts that you put behind it. It's what you do with the data from those devices. You know, having a sensor out there by itself is no good unless you take action off the back of what the sensor is telling you. So, you know, you need the you need the data lakes, you need the analytics, you need all the, the ancillary stuff around it. Uh, in, in respect to energy and utilities and uh, IoT there, one of the big issues that's uh, been known for a long time as, as, as renewables get, you know, penetrate the grid to a greater extent is that they are variable generators. You know, they're not like your coal and gas plants, which, you know, you just turn them on and they start generating an even amount of power and then you turn them off it, and, and, then, and it stops. No, the the, uh, the renewables vary throughout the, the day with the wind picking up or dropping and the sun rising or falling and clouds going by. So they're variable generators. And uh, that destabilizes the grid because uh, that's, you know, you've got your whole supply and demand equation. And if your supply is variable and your demand is also variable, then, you know, you've got a, a hard time managing the two. So if you can't control the supply, then you've got to look at the demand side and see how you can manipulate that. So this is where, you know, IoT can play a huge, huge role, because as you have devices connected, you can turn up or turn down their requirements for energy, or you can see what the demand is likely to be or is at any point in time. And this is where batteries come into it as well because these batteries are connected and you have sensors on them. So that's all IoT as well. But you can think of uh, managing the demand. It's called demand-side management or demand response. So you you can think of loads which are movable. And when I talk about loads which are movable, I'm talking about, for example, if you have in your home an electric water heater, for, you know, an electric immersion water heater for heating your water in your home, you don't care. If that's, if that's properly lagged, if it's properly insulated, you don't care if it heats the water at 3 a.m. in the morning or 2 o'clock in the afternoon, as long as when you turn the tap, out comes hot water. So if you have a smart thermostat in there uh, and it's connected and it's listening, it can adjust its settings such that uh, if the water is at you know 80 degrees or 70 degrees, you don't care because you typically have it at 50 degrees when it's touching your skin, you know, or, or 45 or whatever it is. You never have it anywhere near 70 uh, or you'd burn yourself. So, uh, as, uh, and, and, and for our American listeners, that would be Celsius. Uh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> centigrade. Yes, that's true. Or Celsius. Yes, absolutely. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, but because we would be freezing well. with 50 degree water. <laughs> <laughs> that's very true. Uh, uh, sorry, completely. completely no, that's forgot. just funny. I thought, oh, we're not in the polar bear club. Is that is that where we're? <laughs> and 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 if you think of it the other way around, uh, if you think of your uh, fridge or your freezer, uh, if they are, and again, I can't think in Fahrenheit, but obviously freezing is thirty-two in Fahrenheit. So if your freezer compartment is set to uh, twenty-five or fifteen, you know, it doesn't matter to you. Uh, the food is still frozen. As long as it doesn't go above 32, you don't care. So again, you know, you can stimulate demand. So at times when energy is cheap, you suck it in and you drop the temperature to minus or to 15 at least uh, Fahrenheit. 
Uh, and then as the, temp- as, the, as the price of electricity goes up, you let the temperature drift from 15 to 25 or 28, but don't let it go above 32. And that's fine. The food stays frozen. You know, so that kind of way you can manipulate the amount of power and the times that devices are drawing power. And that way, that's how you manipulate the demand. And then, again, the, uh, in time, the biggest energy uh, uses that people will have will be for powering their cars. And, of course, that's a battery situation. So that's a huge movable load. So that will help utilities enormously with managing the, the demand to meet, bringing the demand to, man, to, to match the supply. And that's, that's where you have the, the, the issues. When the demand and supply go out of sync, you have problems. But as you add more batteries to the grid, you can completely have the demand and the supply in sync, which makes for a perfectly stable grid. And that's where IoT comes into it. Yeah, I think you nailed it. And to take it another, to another level, really, it, it, the, the water heater example. So mm-hmm. not only do I not care what time of day does it, that it heats it, but if the sensors were smart enough to know, look, you've got a 50-gallon tank, but you're really only using 20. There's no yeah. reason for me to fill it up 50 and heat up 50 gallons of water when I'm only going to need 20. And so have the efficiency... Mu- have, have multiple heaters in it. Yeah. Because, yeah. because you know, you have, you have, if you have a large tank, you can have uh, three or four heaters at different heights within it and just heat the top uh, six inches or the top 12 inches or the top, you know, two feet. Right you know, however high it is, because it doesn't mix very well. If, 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 you know, if the bottom stays cool, that's fine. You know, as long as, as long as you're drawing water from the top down. Yeah. We supersize everything over here. So like you buy a house, excuse me, we'll, we'll say, Oh, give me the biggest water here, but really do I need it? And so having, it doesn't matter if you want to buy it, go ahead, but we're going to manage based on consumption, not based on, Oh, it's 60. It can do 60. So if yep. you have guests, you can let it know. Um, or somehow we can have a smart home where it knows you have guests. Yep. And therefore, yep. it yep. sees the demand and increases it and says, okay, for whatever reason, this is going up. But then next week, I'm going to drop it back down. But these are things where you get, you get the local IoT. So it's, I'm going to function at the local level, at the home. Yep. And at then the you've edge. got the grid yep. level. Yeah, the edge, exactly. And then you got the grid level that says, look, I, I only need this much energy for this device or these devices across my home. And that's where the efficiency comes in. I think I, I was listening to a podcast with, with you and I believe it was a gentleman. I can't remember his last name it was Rick, but he, he had whole, had multiple IOT companies and he, they were, you, you yes. both were talking about Rick Bellotta. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a great podcast. And yeah, you, you talked about how it's great that we can get these connected devices in our home with the, with the new, the, the new lights for your, you know, you can connect with your, uh, your hubs and, and Alexa, but are you really getting any advantage out of it other than convenience? And yeah. when you had mentioned, I think it was you that said it would be really good with the advantages if I could sell the data back to, to the grid to let them know yes. how are they being used and even to the manufacturers, like how are these lights being used and yeah. is there a way for us to design them better? It, it, whatever there might be secret information or not secret information but hidden gems of information that we're not even aware of because we can't even ask the question yet so absolutely and that's that, where that's iot the i think big is, advantage yeah go ahead yeah, I'm sorry. That, that, that sure no 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 that that's the big advantage of having connected devices for the manufacturers if they go to a product as a service route you know where they don't sell the devices but they give you the devices and they charge you on their use 
then they have access to the data from those devices, which they can feed into their R&D division because now they know how the devices are actually being used in the wild. Uh, and you know, then version two or version three or the next versions of the device become better and better and better because they see how they're actually being used. And we, we're, we're starting to see this move to the as-a-service model. Philips Lighting, for example. Philips Lighting uh, now owns all of the streetlights in Los Angeles. City of Los Angeles doesn't own any streetlights now. They are billed by Philips per lumen delivered to the city. It's it's a spectacular model, and it, it'll become more and more the norm. And, of course, it means for Los Angeles, they no longer have to think about buying light bulbs. They no longer have to think about going and changing the light bulbs in the street when one of them goes out. Wow. It's Philips. light light as a managed service. That's yes. that's an interesting model. I've never thought about it that way. But, yeah, I mean, and that's yeah, the yeah, disruptive yeah. It's, it's nature of the, of the industry. Like, pretty much everything can be a managed service if it's right. running off a grid. Correct, correct, correct. And we're moving now into a world where it'll be uh, mobility as a service. So increasingly, uh, car companies will stop selling cars and will instead sell their use. Uh, Volvo has their Volvo Cares program, which has been oversubscribed. Uh, so in, in that scenario, I think they charge something like $650 a month and you get an XC40 for two years. And you can change the XC40 after 12 months and get a new one. Uh, and it, the, for the 650, you get the vehicle, full use of the vehicle for something like 15,000 miles a year. Uh, I don't know what happens if you go over the 15,000 miles a year, but I, I do far less than that. So it wouldn't be an issue for me. But you get 15,000 miles a year, you get tax, you get insurance, you get maintenance, you get the whole thing. You don't get fuel. I think you get the, you get to buy the fuel yourself, but you know, you get everything else. Um, so that that's the start, really, of having the mobility as a service. But then you see the likes of um, the GM Maven program, which is uh, about to take off next year. And that's a whole new take on mobility from GM. And it's going to be, well, the, if, if we step back a second and ask why are GM getting into mobility as a service, it's because today GM earns $30,000 on every vehicle they sell, not on the sale but after sales on things like maintenance, on things like repairs, on things like spare parts, all that kind of thing, over the lifetime of the vehicle, they make $30,000. Now, that's going away. Why is it going away? It's going away because we're moving to electric vehicles. An electric vehicle has about 20 moving parts in its drivetrain, whereas an internal combustion engine vehicle has 2,000 or more. So there are far less parts to fail in an electric vehicle. So the income the General Motors will get from the increasing amount of electric vehicles they sell means the income is going to dwindle and dwindle and dwindle and dwindle. And then as we move to autonomous cars, cars will, you know, people will buy fewer cars if there's autonomous cars on the road. And autonomous cars will crash less often than manually driven cars. So again, less repairs. So that 30,000 dwindles even more. So because they're not going to be earning that 30000 on each car, they're going to shift to an alternative model or they're going to have an alternative model where instead of buying the car, you buy the use of the car through a taxi service. So the Maven taxi service means that for, uh, for, for you and I, we would have a Maven app on our phone similar to Uber or Lyft or any of these others. We'd open up the Maven app. 
we'd say where we are, where we want to go. A Maven taxi would appear and bring us there uh, autonomously, no driver. And it means for GM, because the car would be electric and autonomous, there's no driver to pay. It's an electric drivetrain, so the fueling is far cheaper. It's an electric drivetrain, so the maintenance is far cheaper. Uh, so their costs are drastically reduced. The car, because it's electric and autonomous, can drive virtually 24-7, just having to stop to charge from time to time. And the batteries in these electric cars go on forever. They're not like the batteries in your phone or your laptop, which die after however many charge cycles. No, the ones in electric cars go on for hundreds of thousands of miles before they start to lose uh, their, their capacity. Uh, so they can go 700,000 miles and still be at 85% of the original capacity. So they go on forever. So that means for General Motors, they go far beyond the 30,000 per car because these cars will be operating, as I said, virtually 24-7, seven days a week, 365 days a year for hundreds of thousands of miles. Man, it's amazing to think that, you know, hopefully we'll get to see this in our lifetime. That, that would be really fascinating uh, because I've, oh, I've not it, been in the next 10 years. Yeah. I mean, that that would be it. The, I mean, the Maven the, taxi service is starting next year. The disruptive nature of it all, because if you just think you're thinking, we're thinking about, we're talking about cars, right? But yeah. it also changes the insurance in, industry. Completely. So how do I, do I need car insurance anymore? No, I, I really, I Probably really don't. Not. So, yeah. but now the it shifts CEO the insurance. Go ahead. The CEO, the CEO of Volvo said two years ago that if a Volvo autonomous car is involved in an accident, Volvo will assume reliability. There you go. That's I would like, be happy to call my car insurance company and, and can, cancel the insurance. Yeah. Um, yeah. In, fact, in fact, in the UK, Direct Line is the largest insurer in the UK. And if you have a Tesla with uh, autopilot, you get a discount today. Wow. Yep. And that, that's the beauty. Like you, you talk about Tesla. Their brilliance is they're using the, the way we drive now. So they're crowdsourcing their machine learning by yes. mapping how we drive today in Correct. their cars to make for better self-driving cars, which was, is a brilliant. It's, just, it's, it's not just the mapping, and the mapping is hugely important. But it's not just the mapping. It's also they're taking the crash data and making the cars safer. It becomes a learning platform. Yeah, it's so behavioral. It's, it's crash. It's all the yeah. all the data points. IoT <laughs> yeah. again at yeah. the edge, gathering the data, doing the analysis through machine learning to say how do we build safer cars based on the accidents that we're seeing, and these are accidents that that we are are causing, and then yes. how do we improve our driving models based on the type of accidents? I mean, it's. It's really brilliant. And it, it's, it's funny because people, you'll see the news, every, at least over here. You know, something, if somebody, if an autonomous car gets uh, in an accident, it's like the end of the world, right? Say, so <laughs> this is the cutting, this is what needs to happen to take it to the next level. Don't, don't squash this because of these accidents. This is the fail, often fail fast to get to that next level. These are the innovations that have to, have to happen. But, but even absolutely, but even when you look at the amount of miles driven in an autonomous car before it has an accident, they're far more, they're like five or six times more uh, miles driven before they have an accident than manually driven cars. So I forget what the actual numbers are, but it's something like a, a, a regular manually driven car uh, goes for something like, uh, I'm going to make up the numbers, but I'm in the right order of magnitude, about 400,000 miles before it has a crash, whereas an autonomous one goes 3 million. That's amazing. 
Yeah. And then take it, let's take it to another level. So we've got the autonomous cars. So one of the big challenges, I'm sure it's everywhere, but here in the U S especially is highway systems. Yeah. It's where, where can, I mean, just my neighborhood, I moved here about 14 years ago and it, there was no traffic. It was nothing actually around me at all. And now it's crazy. It's just congested all the time. So you have to think, what can we do to alter that congestion or, or alleviate some of that congestion? And so you have autonomous cars, which obviously could help, but then you, you can say, what if we had flying cars? What if we had yes. ways to move, yeah, yeah, yeah. Trans, move cargo? If you In just 3D. took cargo, just yeah. cargo off the road and said, we're going to ship it in the air via drones. You know how much yeah. capacity the roads would have if we just moved that one piece? Yeah. It, yeah. And while, while uh, flying taxis and drones sounds science fiction, uh, there are lots of companies looking into it at the moment. Uber Air. Uh, Uber has their Uber Air division who are very advanced in this space. Uh, and there's lots of startups in there. The, the likes of Lilium out of Germany, the likes of Volocopter. Uh, there's yeah, Kitty Hawk. There's a bunch of them. Boeing have a big play in the space, as do Airbus. So they're they're all getting into it, and there's very good reasons for them to get into it because, well, first of all, the, the technology is already here, so you know it, it's it's completely doable. Uh, the biggest issue is getting over the regulatory hurdles, and they're doing that already. So the, the Volocopter has already been. Uh, uh, licensed for manned flight. The next step is to get it man, uh, licensed for autonomous flight. Uh, Lilium have already done proof of concept. Airbus have their Vahana, which had its first successful flight earlier this year. Uh, so th there's there's lots of them chasing it. And for exactly the reasons you point out, you know, it, 3D space is, is, you know, far less crowded. Uh, NASA and Uber are in partnership to generate the protocols and standards required for vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle communication to make sure that they have collision avoidance systems so that they never crash into each other. So today, the biggest challenge for automobile companies and autonomous car companies, the biggest real challenge for them is they need a close to real-time, high-definition maps because they're moving in 2D space. This is not an issue that flying taxis will have. So you could actually see these flying drones, flying taxis taking off, pardon the pun, before autonomous cars. Yeah, no, that would be, that would be incredible. Because, you know, we're running out of space to build roads. Yes. And it, you say, well, let's, let's, you know, we, let's build more lanes or let's build new roads. Say, so why don't we just work on trying to get things off of the road? That's, that's probably exactly. a simpler play. And, exactly. and so it's, it's fascinating. I've been, I've been reading a lot about it and I'm really glad that companies like Boeing and Uber are trying to figure out ways to invest in, in moving vehicles off the road, leveraging batteries. Obviously that becomes a, a challenge I'm sure with the weight of the vehicles. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll, if we can, plow, we can figure out how to plow through that if we can figure out how to do autonomous driving. Correct. Well, let's get on to one. Uh, I wanted to tap a little bit into uh, another passionate topic of yours, uh, medicine and, and like precision medicine and innovation in that space. Um, sure. Based on what you've been reading and, and, and how you're involved with it, 
What do you see that's coming down the pike that's really exciting? I mean, I read a lot about 3D printing of maybe skin. There was a recent article, I think it was recent, 3D printing of ovaries. Like I thought it was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. What, what, are, what are the other things that you are seeing? Yeah, 3D printing is really interesting, as, as you rightly point out, uh, because um, <clears throat> we have huge problems today with sourcing donors for organ transplants. And that's only going to get worse as the organ donor pool dries up because we get autonomous cars and people no longer die in horrific car crashes. So, you know, uh, there's, there's a, a cloud to every silver lining, apparently. Um, so what, uh, yeah, the, the 3D printing is going to be really important for this. And one of the reasons going to be revolutionary is because you will be able to take a swab of someone's cheek cells and grow a new liver or heart or lung or kidney or whatever from that and then transplant it into the same person. And because it has been grown from their own skin, there'll be no issues around rejection. Yeah, we're still we're still at very early days in this. Obviously, you you rightly pointed out that things like uh, ovaries have been three D printed for mice, not for people. Well, that I've heard of. For mice, it's been done, and those mice have successfully produced live young. So that's you know, amazing, isn't it? I mean, amazing. just to, to think about it is amazing. that. I mean, yeah. I'm a three D printing nut, so but I can't <laughs> imagine say, hey, I'm going to print myself up a couple fingers later on today. You know, <laughs> that's just amazing that they can it's, that they it's can do spectacular. that. Spectacular, it really is. And and they've also uh, this is a, a a research team out of uh, the hospital and university in Madrid who have three D printed human skin. And that's phenomenal as well. Skin is the skin is an organ. It's a human organ. Uh, it's the simplest of the organs, but still, it the fact that they're now able to print it is amazing. And in the article where they talk about this, if you scroll down at the bottom of the article, there's a video with the lead researcher where he very specifically says, "Yes, we did skin, and it's great, but our ultimate aim is." heart, lung, liver, kidney, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it is going to happen. It's just a matter of time. Yeah, but just the skin for burn victims. Just for, for burn victims, yes. But also another thing that hadn't occurred to me until I read the article was they're selling it to the pharmaceutical industry for testing of drugs. So they yeah, no longer yeah. have to test it on people. Yeah, or, 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 e- or, yeah, or, yeah, like, or even like uh, makeup or beauty products. Exactly. I mean, that's, Correct. God, that would yeah. be amazing. Like just. We could eliminate all drug testing on animals. The, the, the other huge shift that I'm seeing in the healthcare industry is the shift to uh, sensors and using sensors for, for uh, collecting data. So uh, think of a typical uh, interaction you would have with a medical professional today. You're, you're, you feel unwell. You call your local doctor's office or your local healthcare center. You get an appointment for the next day or the day after. Uh, when you get there, there's five or six other people in the waiting room. Some of them are coughing and spluttering because it's wintertime and it's cold season. Or You paint a know, great visual, Tom. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're waiting 15 or 20 minutes in the waiting room. And when you do eventually get in to see your medical professional, you know, you're thinking ahead to the next meeting you have on the other side of town. You have to go through that traffic we just talked about. It may be a meeting with your, uh, your, your, your manager or a client, or maybe you're picking up your kids from school or whatever. So you're stressed out. And then the doctor you know, takes out the uh, the blood pressure monitor and the uh, takes your pulse. And of course, they're off the charts. And then the doctor is trying to make a diagnosis based on this data, which is completely out of context. Whereas 
we're all now increasingly wearing sensors. And these sensors are throwing off data. So where we're headed to is that we will increasingly be wearing sensors, which will be publishing our personal private data to a personal private health cloud. And that personal private health cloud, we will grant access and permissions to, to our trusted healthcare provider. And when certain of our vitals go above and below particular thresholds, our trusted healthcare provider will receive an alert. They'll see all the data surrounding that alert. So they'll have it in context. And they can then pick up the phone or send you an email or send you a text to schedule an appointment and bring you in for, for maintenance. If you're familiar with the content, the, the, the familiar with the concept of predictive maintenance, yes. that's exactly what this is. It's predictive maintenance for people. Yeah, I was. And just, that's that's where the healthcare industry is headed. Yeah, I was just interviewing uh, last week, actually, uh, uh, a gentleman who has a company in Dublin, and they create fitness monitoring or really just monitoring equipment for. Uh, it's more like B two B, but mm-hmm. it's his his vision is very similar, where you're constantly being monitored, and yeah. your doctor is aware. And let's say something happens to you. There, the ambulance is aware of what's going on with you. If they have to inject a um, something into you to open up your arteries, then the doctor is aware. They can tell if it's working while you're on their way to the hospital. Yeah. When you're admitted, they can see that they don't need to go to be invasive because things are working. Instead of wasting all that time trying to get you hooked up and figure out where you are, it's already known before yeah. the event started. I have a snapshot, and while the event occurred. And then that data, to your point, could be stored in the cloud using blockchain and yep. shared amongst other doctors who are doing research on patients of similar age, type, race, whatever, to try to leverage it and say, what are the common patterns? You know, maybe we can, maybe we're over prescribing a drug, or maybe we need to look at a different way of, of, of drug creation based on what we've seen, or we've got it all wrong. You know, it, it wasn't or X, it was Y. in this particular demographic, this drug works a different way to the way we expect. Yeah, or, or there's a, and or there's a, a, they're taking a new medication that caused a problem. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. the, 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 the information that can be shared, because there's a lot of drug interaction problems that people just aren't aware of. Correct. And, and it's kind of a trial and error type thing. Because yeah. every pharmaceutical yeah. company is not going to say, let me try my drug with every combination that's out there. It's just not going to be cost effective. Yep. But if you get data on people taking different drugs, that you will help eliminate drug interaction issues moving forward. So it's, it's again, it's crowd crowdsourcing drug interaction data. Yeah, and that yeah. that has tremendous, you know, tr- huge, tremendous huge uh, potential. Uh, potential, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it does. No, I mean the 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 potential uses of all this data that we're just starting to create are enormous. And there's lots of left field uses as well that we haven't even begun to dream about. Yeah, I know. I I was talking to a guy called Christian Bessler last year in in Frankfurt. He was at uh, one of our events there, the the, uh, Leonardo Live event. And he was telling me about they were doing a predictive maintenance play for automobiles. So uh, he works for a company called Continental, and you may be familiar with them because they make a lot of tires. 
but only 40% of their revenue comes from their rubber products. The other 60% comes from uh, smarts. They, they have a big B2B play where they sell to all the big car manufacturers. So quite likely if you own a car, you have some of their components in your car. You're just unaware of it because it's not branded. So what they're what they're doing now is they're creating this remote vehicle data platform where they can take in data from any vehicle and do a predictive maintenance play on it. And it's a B2B to C play because they sell this solution to your local service center. So your local service center becomes the fleet manager for your car and all of his or her other customers' cars. So Instead of your car breaking down at the side of the road, you get a phone call from your service center manager, similar to the doctor one, the doc, you know, where they already have the data around your vehicle. It's diagnosed before you get in the door and it's swapped out because the part has already been ordered in for the repair. But so really, really clever play. But what was really interesting about the story was not that. That was interesting. But what was even more interesting was he said to me, Tom, while we were developing this, we were approached by a weather company. Mm-hmm. I was like, what? Yeah, well, that might, might, what? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, the weather company said, you guys are collecting all this data from cars, right? Yeah. So you're collecting GPS, time of day, external air temperature, mm. windscreen wiper status, fog light status, you know, and so on and so on. And suddenly they had this whole nother new potential revenue stream from the data that they were doing for predictive maintenance. Now, I don't know if they ever followed it up. Hidden money right there. That was hidden money. Yeah, exactly. It was a left field use of the data that they were collecting for one reason, which suddenly had this whole other potential to be a new business model or a new revenue stream for them. That's pretty amazing. And for the weather company, it's hyper-local, real-time weather information. Yeah, and that can be very helpful, especially in areas prone to like tornadoes and, and severe storms, So I mean, yeah. and flooding. Yeah, exactly. Well, now I'll play the contrarian, though. So <laughs> in, in this ever-connected world, how do we take time to disconnect? Ooh, good question. I don't know. I've never bothered to. So <laughs> you're asking the wrong guy. I'm always on. <laughs> yeah, me too. And, I, and I'm just wondering if there is a place where we need to say, hey, look, we need to disconnect because we're just always on. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very good question, I guess. But um, it's not something I've given a huge amount of thought to, I have to say, because I'm rarely turned off. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, uh, I know. <laughs> me either. <laughs> I, I mean, I've, I've started using, I, I have an iPhone, I have two iPhones. I've started using the screen time app on it to, to look into, but not to not to limit, but to look into what I'm using most. And I haven't been hugely surprised, I have to say. Uh, but it is it is interesting to monitor that now that, there, now that it's possible. So, and I, I do it with my kids as well. Hmm. Uh, one of the cool things about the, the screen time, if you have a family set up uh, in your, um, on your iPhones, yeah, in the family, you can then start putting limits on your kids' applications and what they can and can't do uh, through your uh, screen time uh, application or service or whatever we're calling it on the phone. It's not an app. It's one of the settings. But if, if you have a family set up for things like uh, sharing um, uh, iCloud space or uh, sharing Apple Music or any of these things, you can also then start controlling 
what apps they can use for how many hours, that kind of thing. Yeah, I could use that for my 14-year-old. Sure. There you go. Handy well, tip. <laughs> Tom, this has been a great... We're already at the top of the hour. I could probably talk to you for another two hours, but I, this has been really interesting and I'd love to do it again because I, I, one of the things I wanted to get into is the Leonardo and, and there was actually a slew of other topics that I wanted to address. So <laughs> we've got to do it again. Um, but I... I thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. This was an no excellent hour for me. I, I learned quite a bit. Good, good. That's fantastic. I'm, I'm, I'm delighted. I'm delighted you're interested. Thanks for, thanks for inviting me onto the show. It's a real honor. Well, thank you very much. And uh, hopefully we'll talk soon. Sure. Have a good one. You too. I am always fascinated at how much I can learn from the guests I have on the podcast. And Tom was no exception. The information he provided on renewable energy alone will give me research material for weeks to come. I really enjoyed the whole conversation. He's a fascinating guy, and I really hope we get to do it again because there was stuff I really didn't even get to cover. I hope you enjoyed the show as much as I did. And if you have any feedback or comments, you can reach me on Twitter at SocietyWire or email me at bob at SocietyWire.net. Again, always looking for feedback, always looking for comments or even ideas for the next podcast. And as always, look forward to seeing you next week.